The United States is waging a new Cold War on both China and Russia. That is very clear in the proxy war in Ukraine, where the United States is providing military support and weapons to quite literally kill Russian soldiers. And it's also very clear in that pretty much every week, Washington imposes new sanctions on China, aiming at weakening China's economy and tech sector. The U.S. is also trying to start a war over Taiwan to support separatists on Taiwan Island. Another aspect of this new Cold War is the diplomatic war. And the United States is trying to pressure countries around the world to pick a side in this new Cold War. And this is part of Washington's strategy to prevent the emergence of a multipolar world by arbitrarily dividing the world into a bipolar order between the U.S.-led so-called democratic order, in scare quotes, and the Chinese-led order. And that explains the strategy behind the so-called Summit for Democracy that the United States has organized. The Joe Biden administration first organized the Summit for Democracy after it came to power in 2021. And on March 29th and 30th of 2023, the U.S. held its second so-called Summit for Democracy. Yet despite the name, this has nothing to do with democracy. It's not actually about democracy. It's about getting U.S. allies to join it in the new Cold War to isolate China and Russia. China and Russia were not invited to these summits. And many other countries that do have democratic governments were not invited to this summit. Instead, it was a summit of U.S. allies and proxies and client states, and among them actually were authoritarian regimes. So the so-called Summit for Democracy featured numerous anti-democratic governments, including the far-right leader of apartheid Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is overseeing an authoritarian regime. Even Western mainstream media outlets and NGOs have admitted that. Also, the authoritarian president of Poland, Duda, who is likewise overseeing an authoritarian regime. And the authoritarian prime minister of India, Narendra Modi, who leads a far-right anti-democratic government. And the U.S. is trying to recruit India for its new Cold War on China. The U.S. is trying to divide the BRIC system. And Indian diplomats have warned that India is the weakest link in the BRIC system. It was not founded by Modi. It was founded by his predecessor from the opposition Indian National Congress Party. India is a member of the anti-China NATO known as the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. And the U.S. State Department under Donald Trump boasted of trying to use Modi in India and Bolsonaro in Brazil to weaken the BRIC system, to isolate China. So this explains why so many authoritarian regimes were invited to the so-called Summit for Democracy. In addition, Washington invited the unelected coup regime in Pakistan, which overthrew democratically elected Prime Minister Imran Khan. Another blatant example of this hypocrisy is that the democratically elected socialist governments in uh, Bolivia, Venezuela, and Nicaragua were not invited to the so-called Summit for Democracy, despite the fact they are democratic. Instead, the U.S. government invited two right-wing opposition politicians from Venezuela and Nicaragua who were involved in coup attempts to overthrow their government. So once again, nothing to do with democracy. It's about U.S. imperial interests in geopolitics.
The U.S. also invited Taiwan, which is not a country. It is a province of the People's Republic of China. And technically, formally, legally, the United States recognizes that Taiwan is part of China. And yet, by inviting Taiwan in both of these so-called summits for democracy, it is a clear example of the United States supporting separatists trying to destabilize the Chinese government and ultimately overthrow the Chinese government, which is Washington's number one strategy. So today I'm going to go into more detail looking at the ridiculous absurdity and hypocrisy of this so-called summit for democracy. I wrote an article about this over at geopoliticaleconomy.com and in it I have links to all of the sources that I'll be discussing today. Now the US government has always tried to use rhetoric of so-called democracy to justify its imperialist policies, its coups, its wars of aggression and invasions, regime change operations and meddling in foreign countries. The US has carried out more than 450 foreign interventions according to its own military data. And in order to justify it, the US has always tried to use democracy as rhetoric. But the Biden administration in particular has really weaponized this rhetoric and made it a key part of its foreign policy. And in his first State of the Union address in 2022, Biden claimed that the new Cold War between the US and Europe on one side and China and Russia on the other is a, quote, battle between democracy and autocracies. In the battle between democracy and autocracies, democracies are rising to the moment, and the world is clearly choosing the side of peace and security. This is the real test. Now that's Washington's narrative, which is a propaganda narrative. Ironically, Washington's top ally, the European Union, has admitted that this is false. This narrative is not true. And the top foreign policy official of the EU, Josep Borrell, who's a, a Spanish politician, a Spanish diplomat, he gave a speech in Brussels that was for other European diplomats. So it was not for public consumption, but I found it on the EU website and I reported on it. And in this speech, he admitted, he said, this is not democracy versus autocracies. He said, on our side, we have a lot of authoritarian regimes who are our allies. He said, it's not true that we represent democracy. This will coexist with a broader uh, democracies versus authoritarians, a big divide. I wouldn't exist, I, would, I wouldn't insist a lot on it because in our side, there are a lot of authoritarian regimes. You cannot say we are the democracies and the ones who follow us are also democracy. That's not true. That's not true. So that's a rare moment of honesty that exposes what the real intentions are behind the so-called summit for democracy, which is entirely about geopolitics, not about democracy. The political goals behind this so-called summit for democracy were made very clear when Washington used it to try to pressure all of the representatives at the summit to sign a joint statement condemning Russia over the proxy war in Ukraine and only Russia not, of course, mentioning NATO's role in starting this war, the U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine in 2014, NATO encirclement of Russia and expansion right up into Russia's borders. And to the great credit of the new left-wing president of Brazil, Lula da Silva, he refused to join in this declaration condemning Russia. And the leftist president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, his government also 
refused to sign the statement condemning Russia. In the case of Lula, the leftist president of Brazil, he did not he did not participate in the summit, by the way. And he, he also said that, quote, we're going through a moment of threat of a new Cold War. Everyone knows how much the cost in arms spending is to the detriment of social investments. The cause of the defense of democracy can't be used to build walls or sow divisions. To defend democracy is to fight for peace. And he called for political dialogue. So this is a clear condemnation of the proxy war. He used the term Cold War. He said we should not have a new Cold War. He very clearly said that and said that this is about also enriching, enriching the military industrial complex at the expense of working people and social programs like healthcare and education. As for Mexico refusing to join the statement, I did a separate report translating the speech by AMLO, Lopez Obrador, the Mexican leftist president, in which he condemned the hypocrisy of the U.S. oligarchy and said that, you know, essentially the U.S. can't call itself a democracy because it's ruled by economic oligarchs big capitalists, billionaires, while the majority of people don't have money and don't have influence over the political system. I will link to that in the description below. I also want to look at the statement made by the Chinese government, which was not invited to the summit. And the foreign ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning said that the summit basically aims to draw lines between countries in the world according to U.S. criteria and to interfere in their affairs based on U.S. interests. She said the U.S. is trying to impose a hierarchy on the international community and create a division of the world with the false narrative of democracy versus autocracy. And the Ch Chinese foreign ministry said that the, this U.S. summit, quote, reflects how arrogant, intolerant, selfish, and domineering the United States has always been and how it contravenes and tramples on democracy as part of the common values of humanity. So very powerful statement there. I should also point out that a study that was conducted over years by Harvard University, you know, the elite establishment U.S. university, found that 95% of people in China are satisfied with the central government. You can compare that to just 18% of support for the U.S. Congress. And that number is actually higher than usual. Usually it's around 12, 10%. I also want to point out another incredible report that was ironically published by a NATO-backed Western group that found out reluctantly that according to studies of polling of people actually inside the country, China is the most democratic country on earth. According to their study, it's not my words, they interviewed people around the world and asked if they considered their government to be democratic. And in China, 83% of people said they consider their country to be democratic. And in Vietnam, 77% of people said they considered their government democratic, which is the highest rate. China and Vietnam are number one and number two in the entire world significantly higher than the so-called democratic West. In fact, the same study found that only 49% of people in the United States consider their government to be democratic, which is less than half of North Americans. So the US, according to its people, is not a democracy, according to the majority of North Americans. It's the exact opposite of China and Vietnam. 
In France, only 47% of people said that their country is democratic. Both of those rates are lower than in Mexico and in Brazil, where over half of people consider their countries to be democratic. And the leftist president of Mexico, AMLO, has said that Mexico is more democratic than the United States because the U.S. is run by an economic oligarchy. And this polling shows that the average person in Mexico agrees with him that they consider their government to be more democratic than people in the U.S. do. I really want to stress that this poll was not done by a biased pro-Chinese group. It was conducted, ironically, by this Western NGO called the Alliance of Democracies Foundation, which was created by Andrus Vogue Rasmussen, the former secretary general of NATO and the former prime minister of Denmark. And if you look at who funds this think tank, it's a who's who of Western governments and corporations, including Facebook, Microsoft, the George Bush Institute, the Atlantic Council, which is NATO's think tank, CIA cutouts from the U.S. government like the National Democratic Institute and International Republican Institute, the European Endowment for Democracy, the U.S. government itself, the U.S. Embassy, Google. These are the organizations that funded this group that did this study that reluctantly concluded that China and Vietnam are significantly more democratic than the Western so-called democracies. Instead of them, the United States invited the far-right authoritarian leader of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. And not only was Netanyahu invited, he was actually one of the first speakers at the so-called Summit for Democracy. He was on the first panel on the morning of March 29th, along with the authoritarian far-right leader of India, Narendra Modi. This is despite the fact that right now that Israel has an objectively fascist regime. This has been admitted even by the mainstream Western media. Haaretz is the top newspaper in Israel. It is basically the New York Times of Israel. It's a, it's a centrist newspaper. And they published an article titled, Israel's government has neo-Nazi ministers. It really does recall Germany in 1933. Holocaust historian Daniel Blattman says he is astounded at how quickly Israel is hurtling toward fascism. This is the regime that the Biden administration invited to speak at its so-called Summit for Democracy. This mainstream newspaper, Haaretz, has published many articles saying that Israel has an authoritarian government. Here's another article saying that this is Netanyahu's dream state, racist, religious, and authoritarian. I should point out that for 15 of the past 27 years, Netanyahu has been prime minister. Israel is not a democracy. He keeps coming back again and again and again, basically just rigging elections. And yet he was invited to the so-called Summit for Democracy. I mean, I haven't even talked about the Palestinian population, millions of Palestinians who live under a brutal system of apartheid, of settler colonialism, of military occupation, and they don't have any civil rights whatsoever. So even within Israel's so-called borders, Israel doesn't have constitutional borders, by the way, but in its so-called internationally recognized borders, it is not a democracy, and especially in the Palestinian occupied territories. I mean, so it's an absolute joke that this authoritarian regime was invited to the so-called summit for democracy, but it shows that it's not actually about democracy. It's the summit of U.S. allies for the new Cold War. Time magazine has been saying for years that Israel is authoritarian. 
Even Foreign Affairs Magazine, which is the official media outlet of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is basically an arm of the US government, even they have acknowledged that Israel has an authoritarian regime, referring to Netanyahu's government as the most right-wing government in its history, and says that Netanyahu has returned to power with a mission, making Israel into an openly racist authoritarian state. In a report on a fascist member of Netanyahu's government, a minister, who claims that the Palestinian people don't exist. The, even the Associated Press admitted that Benjamin Netanyahu's attempt to destroy the independence of the judicial system will upend the country's system of checks and balances and push Israel toward authoritarianism. Britain's state media outlet, the BBC, has been reporting on the massive protests in Israel going on against Netanyahu's authoritarianism and also admitted that Netanyahu's attempt to destroy the judicial independence will bring about an authoritarian demagogic state. Now, obviously, these Western media outlets are biased, but they're biased in the interest of the United States and Israel and their allies. So the point I'm, 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 not, I'm not praising Western media here. Israel has been authoritarian for decades. Israel has always been authoritarian because it's based on the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people and settle their colonialism and military occupation. I'm making a separate point. I'm saying that even according to Joe Biden's own criteria, even according to the criteria of the US State Department, Israel is an authoritarian regime. I'm using mainstream bourgeois corporate media, Western sources, and they admit that these regimes are authoritarian. And yet they were invited to the so-called Summit for Democracy because again, it's about the new Cold War. It's pure hypocrisy. Now let's talk about another authoritarian far-right leader who was invited to this so-called Summit for Democracy. This is the leader of Poland, Polish President Andrzej Duda, and he gave a speech condemning Russia and claiming absurdly that Russia is attempting to erase the Ukrainian nation. So this is why he was invited. Poland is an authoritarian far-right regime, but it's anti-Russian and pro-NATO in EU. Poland's a member of the EU and NATO. So that explains why they were allowed. Ironically, it was former US President Barack Obama himself who admitted that Poland and Hungary are essentially authoritarian. He did an interview in 2021 with CNN in which Obama said that Hungary and Poland, quote, now essentially have become authoritarian. And yet something weird happened. Biden invited Poland, but he did not invite Hungary. And it's very easy to explain why. It's another example of this hypocrisy. Hungary and Poland are both right-wing authoritarian regimes. Both of them are members of NATO. Both of them are members of the European Union. But Hungary's foreign policy is independent. Hungary has been trying to balance the West against Russia, maintaining good relations with both sides. That's why Hungary was banned, whereas Poland, which is just as authoritarian as Hungary, was invited because it's anti-Russian and pro-NATO. So what, that, what this really shows is that the so-called Summit for Democracy is actually the anti-China, anti-Russia summit. It's not the Summit for Democracy. Another example of this is Turkey, formerly known as Turkey. Another NATO member was not invited. There were only two NATO members not invited to Biden's summit. Hungary and Turkey, and there was one EU member, Hungary. And what unites both of them? Both of these countries have tried to balance their foreign policy 
of the West against China and Russia, maintaining good relations with both sides, refusing to pick a side in the new Cold War. That's why they were banned. Ironically, if you look at reports in the mainstream Western media talking about authoritarianism in Poland, usually it talks about authoritarianism in Poland and Hungary combined. Reuters published an article, Poland, Hungary, turning more authoritarian rights group says it quoted a mainstream NGO in Europe called the Civil Liberties Union for Europe, which is like the a version of the European version of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU in the US. And it noted that both countries are seizing further control of the justice system, civil society and media while cutting basic human rights and fueling divisions by scapegoating migrants and other minority groups. The website Euronews published an article reprinted by Yahoo News that acknowledged that the Polish government is becoming more and more authoritarian, quoting a report from a Western government funded organization called the International IDEA, the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. Again, I want to stress, this is a pro-Western group. It's biased. It's funded by Western governments, and it admits that NATO and EU member Poland is authoritarian. The far right ruling party law and justice has carried out phone tapping of political opponents and journalists to spy on them. It is carrying out violent repression of protesters, something that's also very common in the US, which is a police state And police brutality in the US is probably the worst police brutality in the entire world. And yet they still claim the US is democratic and this report pointed out that that in Poland, police, they regularly detain anti-fascist protesters while allowing fascists to use Nazi symbols. So this is the regime that Biden invited to the Democracy Summit. I mean, widely acknowledged in Western media outlets like Politico that it is an authoritarian regime. But if you're anti-Russia and anti-China, the U.S. doesn't care if you're authoritarian, because according to the U.S., Democracy means pro-imperialism, pro-capitalism, anti-China, anti-Russia, pro-NATO. That's what democracy means. Another example of this is that Italy's far-right leader, Giorgia Maloney, was invited to attend the so-called Summit for Democracy, and she is a far-right extremist. She has been a lifelong member of Italy's neo-fascist movement, praising the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. She started her political career as the leader of the youth wing of a fascist political party founded by former members of the regime of Mussolini. Here is a video clip of her defending Mussolini. It's the audio is in French, so I'm going to just read out the English language subtitles below. Today, Maloney's political references are those of fascist Italy. She doesn't hide it. She said, me, I believe Mussolini was a good politician. By which I mean that everything he did, he did for Italy. And we don't have that anymore in the politicians. Now, Maloney's apologists will say, well, she was young when she said that. You really think she still supports Mussolini? Yeah, I strongly do believe that because there's a lot of evidence. So uh, she, her political party right now is called the Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia. And their symbol is directly based on, it's the exact same symbol that was used by the fascists who were from Mussolini's regime, when Mussolini's regime was overthrown at the end of World War II, his supporters, people who were part of war criminals, who were part of his regime, 
created a fascist political party called the Italian Social Movement. And they used a, a, a flame, and that represents the flame of the spirit of Mussolini, continuing on, with the colors of the Italian flag. And still today, the political party of Maloney, the prime minister of Italy, uses the same flame, representing the spirit of Mussolini living on. It's the exact same symbol. She is a lifelong fascist, a lifelong defender of Mussolini, and in fact, a leader of her far-right Brothers of Italy party named Romano La Russa. He, did, he was in, under investigation for doing a Nazi salute at a funeral for a right-wing Italian politician. There's video footage of him and other political allies of Maloney doing Nazi salutes at this funeral. And by the way, this political ally of hers has a bust, a statue of Mussolini in his house. But why was Maloney invited to the summit despite being a lifelong fascist? Because she loves Ukraine. She strongly supports Ukraine and she strongly supports NATO. And NATO has a history of supporting Nazis going back to Operation Gladio. Reuters published an article hilariously titled, Italy's Maloney ready to risk unpopularity over support for Ukraine. She visited Kiev. She met with the Western puppet leader Zelensky and pledged more support for this NATO proxy war against Russia. So it doesn't matter how much she praises Mussolini. It doesn't matter how fascist he is. The West loves her. NATO and the US love her because she supports their proxy war. And that's why she was invited to the so-called Summit for Democracy. Now, speaking of hypocrisy and authoritarianism, Ukraine's authoritarian regime was also invited to speak at the so-called Summit for Democracy, which is completely laughable because according to any objective definition of the term, Ukraine has a far-right authoritarian anti-democratic regime. And this is not just because of the proxy war with Russia that NATO is waging. Even before Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, Zelensky was already imposing authoritarian policies and his predecessor, the Ukrainian billionaire oligarch Poroshenko, was also imposing authoritarian policies this is a report from German state media DW back in 2021, a year before Russia invaded, admitting that Ukraine banned media outlets, TV stations that it deemed pro-Russian, which we all know that's an empty term. It means whatever they want it to mean. So they were already banning independent media outlets a year before Russia invaded. They were also imprisoning opposition politicians the main Ukrainian opposition lawmaker, Viktor Medvedchuk, was also put on house arrest. And this was in 2021, again, a year before Russia invaded. And then after Russia invaded, they imprisoned him. First, he was under house arrest. After Russia invaded, they imprisoned him again. So this is not a democracy at all. Going back to 2015, right after the US-backed coup in Ukraine that overthrew Ukraine's democratically elected geopolitically neutral government, in 2014. As of 2015, the Ukrainian regime was already cracking down on civil liberties and making it illegal to be a leftist. This is an article in The Guardian from 2015. Ukraine bans Soviet symbols and criminalizes sympathy for communism. Two new laws that ban communist symbols while honoring nationalist groups that collaborated with the Nazis have come into effect in Ukraine raising concerns that Kiev could be stifling free speech 
and further fragmenting the war-torn country. The first law forbids Soviet symbols, making something like selling a USSR souvenir or singing the Soviet national anthem, national hymn, or the Internationale, punishable by five years in prison or 10 years in prison for the member of an organization. Another law passed by the Ukrainian regime made it mandatory to honor Nazi collaborators like the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, or the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, UPA. It makes it a criminal offense to question the legitimacy of their actions, despite the fact that they collaborated with the Nazis and took part in ethnic cleansing and genocide in the Nazi Holocaust. That was all before Russia invaded. And since then, Ukraine has become even more authoritarian. In March of 2022, a year ago, the Zelensky regime banned all of the main opposition parties, including all of the leftist parties. It's now illegal in Ukraine to be part of a communist or socialist party. And the Ukraine's office boasted of this on the official government website, boasting that these parties were all banned in Ukraine. The left opposition, Union of Left Forces, Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine, Socialist Party of Ukraine, Socialist Party, they were all banned. It is illegal now to be a leftist in Ukraine. This is a far-right authoritarian regime. Zelensky has also consolidated authoritarian control over the media. In March of 2022, the Zelensky regime using martial law signed a decree to combine all TV channels into one TV channel that's controlled by the government. And then at the end of 2022, Zelensky imposed even more authoritarian control over the media. The Western website Open Democracy warned of new media laws that threatens press freedom and notes that, you, that Zelensky's political party has decided to tight, tighten its control over the press subordinating all media outlets to a single state body that has the power to warn, fine, and shut down any media outlet. Under the bill's powers, Ukraine's National Council of Television and Radio Broadcasting will gain powers to regulate newspapers, online media, or digital platforms that provide media services alongside its existing authority over TV and radio. It will give unprecedented powers of control over Ukraine's press unprecedented state control. Even the New York Times admitted this. In December of 2022, when Zelensky passed that authoritarian law, it says that it could restrict press freedom. Journalists have denounced it as a move toward censorship. Zelensky signed into a law a bill that expands the government's regulatory power over the news media. Journalist organizations have warned it could arrest pre erode press freedoms. There are serious concerns about the independence of the regulatory body. The law expands the authority of Ukraine's state broadcasting regulator to cover online and print news media. Zelensky's administration has been accused of undermining press freedom in recent years, even before Russia invaded. And then there's Zelensky's authoritarian attacks on workers' rights in Ukraine. Today, Ukrainian workers have basically zero rights. Zelensky made it basically illegal to form a union, suspending collective bargaining rights, and even the Western, the U.S. government-funded Solidarity Center of the AFL-CIO Trade Federation has criticized these attacks on Ukrainian workers, calling it a significant assault on workers' rights. Three-quarters of 
workers in Ukraine have no union protection and no collective bargaining rights. So Ukraine has quite literally the some of the most harsh anti-worker laws on earth. And it's not just because of the war. This warns that it's yes, it's valid during martial, martial law, but labor experts say that Zelensky may extend it. It is the latest in a string of legislation targeting workers' rights and the ability of unions to function freely. Lobbyists have pushed laws that reduce wages, limit the use of formal contracts that ensure workers have job stability, and weaken their collective voice by targeting unions. This is the authoritarian far-right regime in Ukraine. What Zelensky is implementing in Ukraine is basically what Pinochet, the far-right dictator in Chile, implemented after the U.S.-backed coup in Chile against the democratically elected socialist president, Salvador Allende, in 1973. It's the same neoliberal right-wing economic policies. And literally, Zelensky is selling his country to U.S. corporations, to Wall Street. I mean, this is the definition of authoritarianism. But... Because Ukraine is a Western puppet regime, because it's anti-Russia, because it's pro-NATO, it's pro-U.S. imperialism, and because its authoritarianism is right-wing authoritarianism, not so-called left-wing authoritarianism, the U.S. loves it. The U.S. loves capitalist authoritarianism. I mean, the U.S. itself is an authoritarian capitalist regime. Now, the fact that Taiwan was invited to this so-called summit for democracy is preposterous. One, because Taiwan is not a country. Legally, the United States recognizes that Taiwan is part of the People's Republic of China. And but two, another factor is that for most of its history, since the Chinese Revolution in 1949, when the U.S.-backed far-right nationalist forces led by Chiang Kai-shek when they fled to Taiwan and there they were militarily supported by the U.S. to try to wage a proxy war against the People's Republic of China. And the U.S. had a military base on Taiwan Island where it stored nuclear weapons aimed at mainland China. For all of that period, Chiang Kai-shek was a fascist dictator and Taiwan was run by an authoritarian dictatorship. So, I mean, this idea that Taiwan is like a beacon of democracy is preposterous. But furthermore, let's look at the so-called uh, Shanghai communique. This is the first of the three communiques that the U.S. government signed with China in the 1970s and early 80s when they normalized relations. And the Shanghai communique was signed in 1972 when U.S. President Richard Nixon visited China to officially open relations with the People's Republic of China for the first time. And very clearly in the Shanghai communique, the U.S. agreed to this. The U.S. says, the United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwanese Strait maintain there is but one China and that Taiwan is a part of China. The United States government does not challenge that position. It affirms the ultimate objective of the withdrawal of all U.S. forces and military installations from Taiwan. And again, at that time, Washington had thousands of troops, and it had nuclear weapons on Taiwan Island. And now here we are. The U.S. is blatantly violating that agreement, the foundational agreement that the United States signed with China 51 years ago, saying that it recognized that Taiwan is part of China. This is a blatant violation of the diplomatic and legal 
obligations of the U.S. government. So it talks about democracy, but it violates democracy, the spirit of democracy, by supporting these separatist forces in Taiwan. And now the U.S. is selling them billions of dollars of weapons. And the U.S. has troops. There are military personnel on Taiwan Island in this province of the People's Republic of China who are supporting separatists who eventually plan on waging a war of secession against China. The hypocrisy is absolutely astounding. Now, another example of this ridiculous hypocrisy is that the Biden administration invited Pakistan's unelected coup regime to the so-called Summit for Democracy. Now, Islamabad did not join, and that's because the Pakistani regime right now is facing mass protests and a popular uprising against its authoritarianism. But it shows once again that this is about geopolitics. It's not about democracy. The U.S. is trying to weaken Pakistan's alliance with China, and it's trying to use Pakistan also as a proxy against Russia, and it's trying to pressure Pakistan to normalize diplomatic relations with the Israeli apartheid regime. So that's why Pakistan was invited, despite the fact that its current prime minister, Shabazz Sharif, was not elected ever, and he's blatantly corrupt. He was being investigated and charged with corruption when he was made unelected prime minister after a U.S.-backed coup overthrew the democratically elected prime minister Imran Khan, who has been leading these pro-democracy protests that have been violently repressed by the authoritarian Pakistani regime. And with full U.S. support, the Pakistani regime has been banning the speeches that Imran Khan gives. You cannot broadcast them on TV. It has tried to arrest and assassinate Imran Khan. It has violently crushed protests and it has arrested, the Pakistani regime has arrested people on social media for criticizing the unelected regime and expressing support for Imran Khan. And yet they were invited because again, this is not a democracy summit. It's the new Cold War summit. Now, speaking of Pakistan, the US has also been trying to recruit India for its new Cold War on China. India is a member of the anti-China NATO, known as the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. And India right now has a far-right government led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Modi was one of the first speakers in the so-called Summit for Democracy alongside Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel on the opening panel on March 29th. Now, to understand Modi, we have to understand that he is a longtime, decades-long member of a fascist paramilitary group called the RSS, which pushes an extreme far-right Hindu nationalist ideology that basically sees Muslims and Christians and Buddhists and other minorities as second or third-class citizens and considers that India is Hindustan, it is a land of Hindus, and there are multiple far-right politicians in Modi's uh, party, his political party, the BJP, which is the political arm of the fascist RSS movement. Many of his political allies have openly called for India to become a so-called Hindu Rashtra, which means a Hindu state, a theocratic state. And that is a complete violation of the Indian constitution, which was created after the overthrow of British colonialism in 1947 independence from British colonialism. And Nehru, the great socialist leader, came to power and created a constitution in India. The three main points of the original Nehruvian Indian constitution is that the state is 
secular, democratic, and socialist. And now under Modi, the RSS and the BJP are trying to make India theocratic, a Hindu supremacist state, authoritarian, and capitalist neoliberal. What's widely known is that Modi, before he became prime minister, was the head of the state of Gujarat. And in 2002, he oversaw a massacre, a pogrom, in which hundreds of Muslims were killed in communal violence. And in India, when they say communal, it doesn't mean like positive communal support. Communal means the uh, sectarian violence of different communities, of different religious and ethnic communities. And he oversaw this massive pogrom where hundreds of Muslims were killed in 2002. That's known. And in fact, as prime minister, Modi has been trying to censor documentaries and reports about his role in that massacre. But what's not as well known is also when Modi was leader of Gujarat, Hitler was praised in public schools. When he was the governor of Gujarat, public schools, public high schools had social studies textbooks published by the Gujarat State Board of School textbooks that condemned the freedom movement against British colonialism because, by the way, the RSS, this fascist Hindu supremacist paramilitary group, was they supported British colonialism. They were not against British colonialism. The independence movement against British colonialism was mostly led by the left, by great socialists like Bhagat Singh, the, the martyr, and of course, Nehru, who was a socialist. The, the right wing, they, they, were, they were wealthy. They were, many of them were oligarchs and landlords and capitalists, and they collaborated with the British colonialists. And in India, sorry, in Gujarat, these textbooks that when Modi was leader, they honored Hitler, the Supremo, and the internal achievements of Nazism. Now, I mentioned that Modi has been a basically a lifelong member since his youth of the RSS, this fascist paramilitary group. And one of the main ideologues and one of the early leaders of the RSS was directly inspired by Hitler, by Nazi Germany. His name was M.S. Goldwalker. He was one of the early leaders of the RSS, which the official name is the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sang, and their supporters are known as Sangis. And he wrote a book, this leader of the RSS that Modi is a part of, he wrote a book called We or Our Nation Defined, in which he openly praised Hitler. And he said, to keep up the purity of the nation and its culture, Germany shocked the world by her purging the country of Semitic races, the Jews. He praised its national pride. And he said that it's impossible for these minority groups to be assimilated. And he said, quote, it is a good lesson for us in Hindustan to learn and profit by. This is one of the found the early leaders of this fascist paramilitary that Modi has been a decades long member of. And today his political party, the BJP, is the political arm of this fascist movement inspired by the Nazis. Most of the media in India is controlled by right wing oligarchs who are very biased and who support Modi and support the BJP. But there are a few independent media outlets, although they're constantly attacked by the government. And the, the, the website Scroll, for instance, has warned that Indian democracy is marching toward authoritarianism. The leftist independent media outlet NewsClick in India had its offices raided by the police. 
and the editor and writers were detained in their house and questioned and had all their things searched by the Indian government. Why? Because they're leftist dissidents who oppose this far-right authoritarian regime. Even Western media outlets, mainstream outlets like the New York Times, have admitted that under Modi, India is becoming an authoritarian regime. This is an article by the Indian journalist Devashis Roy Chaudhry, who wrote that Mr. Modi has an, a, a campaign of authoritarianism and New Delhi is destroying democracy and building a hollowed out facade that exists to legitimize authoritarian rule. That is the New York Times admitting this about this key US ally, India. NBC News published a report about Modi's banning of a BBC documentary exposing his role in the Gujarat massacre in 2002. And it warns about rising authoritarianism and the youth activists who are brutalized by many of these far-right Hindu nationalist gangs like the ABVP and other supporters of the RSS. The mainstream Washington mouthpiece foreign policy admitted, asked, it reported that India is losing its claim to be a democracy. Another mainstream US media outlet, The New Yorker, admitted that Modi is pushing India's democracy past its breaking point and is moving in a more authoritarian direction. Now, obviously, again, I'm not all, I'm not praising all of these mainstream Western media outlets. I'm often very critical of them. I'm pointing out the hypocrisy because Biden and the US government constantly quote the mainstream media to condemn other countries like Venezuela and Nicaragua supposedly as authoritarian. And here their own allies are being exposed as authoritarian and they don't care. And they're inviting them to their so-called summit for democracy. It's all so hypocritical. And now the most absurd aspect of Modi being invited to speak at the US government so-called Summit for Democracy is that a week before Modi was, spoke at this summit, the main opposition leader in India was sentenced to two years in prison, Rahul Gandhi, over absurd politically motivated charges. He was sentenced to two years in prison because in 2019, during an electoral campaign, he made a joke at a rally in which he said he talked about Modi, the prime minister, and two other millionaire or billionaire oligarchs who were right wing allies of Modi, and their last names were also Modi. And he made a joke about how, wow, look at all these people whose last names are Modi and they're all thieves. And in response, another ally of Modi uh, sued him for defamation, claiming that with that joke, referring to people who literally are these oligarchs who were found guilty of fraud and are fugitives of justice, whose last names are Modi. The other uh, Modi ally used this to try to have a case against Raul Gandhi claiming that this is defamation against all people with the last name Modi. And the court said that, that that's a justifiable case against Raul Gandhi. And in response, Gandhi was kicked out of the Indian parliament. He lost, he was suspended from the parliament and they're trying to imprison him for two years, which would, they're also trying to prevent him from running for office. And India has national elections in 2024 in one year. So this is blatantly an attempt to prevent the main opposition leader from participating in the election using a completely bogus case based on a joke he made about people who literally are corrupt. So this is yet another example of the incredible hypocrisy of the US 
claiming to support democracy while it's actually supporting far-right authoritarian fascistic regimes. And the reason why is very clear. Washington is trying to recruit India for its new Cold War on China. Washington is trying to use India to weaken the BRICS bloc. And former CIA director made Secretary of State under Donald Trump, Mike Pompeo, admitted this. He tweeted in January, right before the end of the Trump administration, in January 2021, Pompeo tweeted, Remember BRICS? Well, thanks to Jair Bolsonaro and Narendra Modi, the B and the I, the Brazil and India, get that the C and the R, China and Russia, are threats to their people. So this is a clear example of the U.S. using the far-right leader of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, and the far-right leader of India, Narendra Modi, to try to weaken and divide the BRICS and turn them against both China and Russia. Now, the U.S. did not succeed in turning them against Russia, but the U.S. did try to succeed in turning them against China. Bolsonaro railed very hard against China. He campaigned against China. He did so many ridiculous anti-China things. I'm not even going to say some of it because I think the algorithm would actually probably censor this video. But um, uh, And Modi, they did not succeed in getting India to weaken its alliance with Russia. And India has maintained com a completely neutral stance over the proxy war in Ukraine because Russia is one of India's most important trading partners. Russia sells India very cheap discounted oil and gas and also fertilizer and wheat. But that would be true for any government in India. If the Indian National Congress Party, if Rahul Gandhi was in power, they would also maintain good relations with Russia as well. The difference is that Modi and the BJP are extremely anti-China, and the U.S. is trying to recruit India for its new Cold War against China. The former Indian diplomat M.K. Bajrakumar acknowledged this over at his website, Indian Punchline. He is one of the best geopolitical analysts. He was a longtime diplomat in India, and he published an article titled, India Has Got the BRICS Blues. And he said, he noted that there was a recent meeting of the BRICS leaders in Brazil and everyone was represented except India. India did not attend. And he pointed out that India's underrepresentation is probably because Modi and Bolsonaro were very close allies. Both of them are far right fascistic leaders. He points out all of the horrific things that Bolsonaro said, extremely racist and misogynist. And I'm not going to say some of it, so I'm not censored by the algorithm, but in terms of violence against women. And in this article, Bhadra Kumar pointed out that Lula, who is one of the co-founders, the new left, the left wing president of Brazil, who's come back. He's not new. This is his third term. He was one of the co-founders of the BRICS system. And now that he's back, Lula is certain to steer the BRICS to a higher destiny during his four year term. Now, I should stress this point. Modi was not one of the co-founders of the BRIC system. In fact, before it was BRICS with an S, it was BRIC, B-R-I-C, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And one of the co-founders was the former Indian Prime Minister, Manhoman Singh, who was from the Indian National Congress Party. It was not Modi. Modi came on later. Lula was one of the co-founders of the BRICS. It was one of his ideas. 
And in this article, M.K. Bhadrakumar has pointed out that India is the weakest link in the BRICS system. He notes that India's government it believes in the so-called rules-based order, which is a metaphor for the political ideology of the U.S. as the dominant state and lone superpower in the 1990s. So unipolar imperial hegemony. And Bhadrakumar pointed out that the BRIC system has faced a lot of internal contradictions and conflicts. And he said, quote, the main reason for this is India's unwillingness to work with China as leaders of economic growth. And he said that the aggravation of contradictions between China and India has led to a slowdown in the active work of the BRICS. He says Modi's far-right government in India feels uneasy that the center of gravity in BRICS is shifting to the left and India will find it difficult to maintain its role as a regional leader with the entry of Egypt, Turkey, Turkey, Turkey Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Indonesia into the BRICS. And he said, being an acolyte of the U.S.-led rules-based order, India faces the specter of isolation. Those are the words of the former longtime Indian diplomat M.K. Bhadrakumar, one of the best geopolitical analysts today. And as I mentioned earlier, India is part of the anti-China NATO, which is the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. And it is, is collaborating actively with the U.S. government against China. So even though India has good relations with Russia and has been neutral over Ukraine, it still has a lot of tensions with China. And the U.S. is trying to recruit India to try to weaken and isolate China and destabilize the BRICS and Shanghai Cooperation Organization and other institutions of Asian regional integration. So this explains why India was invited to the so-called Summit for Democracy. The U.S. knows that India is an authoritarian regime. It knows that Modi is a fascistic far-right leader, but the U.S. doesn't care about democracy. That's why the U.S. has supported the vast majority of dictatorships on Earth, which were right-wing, fascist, capitalist dictatorships. As the former U.S. president, allegedly FDR, said of the far-right dictator, military dictator, Somoza in Nicaragua, he said, he may be an SOB, but he is our SOB. And that's still how U.S. imperial strategists see the world today. And the so-called Summit for Democracy has nothing to do with democracy. I have repeated myself a lot here. I know this is way longer than I thought the analysis would be, but I wanted to go into detail because we need to understand the incredible hypocrisy of the U.S. empire and understand what really drives the geopolitical and economic policies of the United States and the U.S. empire. It has nothing to do with democracy. It's about weakening the emergence of the new multipolar world. That's why the U.S. invited India and Pakistan. That's why the U.S. is continuing to try to destabilize China and Russia. It really is that simple. It's about the U.S. trying to maintain its unipolar imperial hegemony over the world by frustrating preventing the emergence of a multipolar world by creating a bipolar world order and forcing countries to pick one of the camps, the U.S.-led imperial camp or the China-led camp. China's not calling for that. China doesn't want to be the leader of a bipolar world. China constantly calls for multilateralism, multipolarity, win-win cooperation. Chinese, Chinese diplomats const constantly criticize the, what they call the Cold War mentality. 
But the U.S. is using that Cold War mentality to try to divide the world. And the so-called Summit for Democracy is a clear example of that. Now, with that, I'm going to conclude here. This was a very long episode. I apologize. But if you want to read more and get access to all of the sources that I discussed today, you can go to the article over at geopoliticaleconomy.com. I link to it in the description below. If you want to support the work that we can do here, you can go to geopoliticaleconomy.com support, or you can become a patron over at patreon.com geopoliticaleconomy. We're completely independent, so any support you could provide would go a long way. I want to thank everyone. If you're watching or listening, please subscribe, and I'll see you next time.